even with your extra time, it's time to start. Just two or three things to clean up here. In the first case, uh, somebody was wanting to know the scripture that went along with the part about not stewing. And I believe the scripture I quoted was Psalm 37, verse 8. Psalm 37, verse 8. Psalm 37, verse 8. That Kevin, that okay? Psalm 37, verse 8. Okay. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Thanks for asking. Also, uh, Laura Lee, whom I don't see at the moment, but she did some research for us. She's probably, oh, she yeah, she's up the other area. Um, on that issue of whether a woman is ever said to be angry in the Bible. Laura Lee looked through 62 translations, accountant that she is, and she's found one, apparently very dynamic equivalence translation, that says Jezebel was furious. That's the only one that said anything of that nature. And I looked in 1 Kings 19.1, which was the reference, and there's nothing there about Jezebel being furious in any kind of a literal equivalency translation that I know of. Therefore, I assume for the time being that it's not in the text, and therefore I believe Laura Lee and I could agree that my point stands, that the Bible never actually says that any individual-specific named woman was angry, though we all know women can be angry. So there's that point. Uh, another question was asked during the break about how we should have conversations in a family so that we're not just pretending that nobody got mad. And I, I think it's it's much simpler to do than it might at first seem. If I'm the father and I have blown up at my family, then when things have settled down, I get my wife and children together and say, I am sorry. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do like that. I'm trying to do better. I'm going to try to do better. And I'm sorry for my outburst. And I think this goes a long way with people in general and with maybe with kids in particular. They need to know where they stand. And kids can handle that. Kids are amazingly resilient. They can, they can understand that there are situations and conflicts that are not what they should be. And they'll see that in any family on a fairly regular basis. But they need to know where they stand in the sense that the father is repentant of what he has done, that he didn't handle his anger well. And just, just have those conversations and then go on. But be open and honest about it rather than trying to pretend. It's the pretending that makes it sort of go underground like this is a thing in our family that we can't talk about. There ought not to be too many things in your family that you can't talk about. So I appreciate that question as well. So during the first hour, just summing up, I, we were talking about don't sweat the small stuff. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his, his glory to overlook an offense. The summary of the first hour would be that I want to be slow about getting angry. I want to overlook silly things. I want to have a Christ-like attitude. I'm supposed to be the light of the world, so I need to strengthen, work on strengthening my love. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Charity suffers long and is kind. So if I strengthen my love, I'm going to be slow to get anger, angry. Anger can be used for good, but it's a very dangerous thing. So we need to heed the biblical warnings and apply the biblical remedies because we don't want to hurt the church, we don't want to hurt each other, and we don't want to 
conquered ourselves. Are there questions or comments to this point? Can't see that far, but I can see a hand up. Are we taking mics out? Did somebody... Is that Ryan? Oh, there we go. Is that Ryan? That's that's Ryan with an E. I first met her when she was in the back seat of my car. Hello. With a bunch of boys. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm still with a bunch of boys. Yep. Um, the only thing I was thinking of is, although it doesn't mention anything in the Bible specifically about women struggling with this, that it is extremely common. Um, and especially for some after childbearing. And that I think to a degree there are some in the church who, um, oh, I cannot think how to word this. If you don't give recognition that women can also struggle with it, then women might feel opposed to seeking help if there's something different in them after having a child. Um, and that's really dangerous. Uh, there are lots of hormonal changes that can occur. And um, if they are ashamed or refusing to um, think that, if they think that people are going to look down on them for these changes, then they're not going to get the help that they need or even be willing to recognize it in themselves. Um, and yeah. it doesn't happen consistently and it, isn't a guarantee, but uh, just to not be opposed to have open conversations for either spouse who might be struggling with anger. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. And it's it's an excellent point, especially after childhood. There are hormonal issues that I don't begin to understand where women are concerned. I think probably older women can help younger women with this, but we, we wouldn't want anybody to think that because the Bible doesn't mention a specific woman as being angry, that women don't have anger issues. And they certainly can, especially at that time, maybe. Issues of anger and or depression. So that certainly should be acknowledged as a reality. And I hope you get, I hope anybody gets whatever help they need to resolve that. I think women can help other women with that better than I could. Thank you so much for that. Alan. Yeah, it's Alan. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Moses to a great position of authority and responsibility. And we have men that are supposed to be in the same position, but yet be sober-minded and not quick-tempered right. and not quarrelsome. But I heard a lesson once by a, a respected man on gossip. And in that lesson, he he became angry. And it was impactful to the church when he did that because of the severity of the situation. So comment on that, on the importance of being slow to anger, but how impactful it can be. Okay. Thank you, Alan. Yes, I think there are expressions of anger that can be beneficial, but I think they're rare. In fact, if we do it very often, the good effect that it might have would wear off and become something else. But it is needed at times. And uh, I think a little later I'll be commenting more on Ephesians 4.26, which says, be angry. Some people take that as a concession that it's okay to be angry if you have to be. But the actual text says, be angry. 
And I take it as it's written. There is a time to be angry, and there are things that we ought to be angry about. So, although, in general, yes, the qualification is not soon angry, there are times to be. Appreciate that point. It's a, a fine point and one that we need to handle very carefully because in the overwhelming majority of situations, it's best not to be angry. Tom? Just thinking about the hormone, hormone thing a little bit. Uh, especially as men, as we get older, our testosterone level goes down. And, and so we probably, because I think, and I think there's a reason for that. I think naturally we're the protectors, right? So I think there was a reason God made that hormone in us, you know. And um, so as we get older, hopefully sometimes maybe we, we are able to manage that a little better. Uh, I've seen it go both ways, though. I have seen older people get a little crankier, I guess, as their bones start aching more and yeah. stuff like that. But Yeah, age can be a two-edged sword there. If you don't feel good, then you might be crankier. But you do, the, the edge of that uh, energy wears off of the anger at the same time. So if we're trying to live a godly life, I think it becomes easier to control anger over time. Uh, at least it has for me. Good point. Thank you. Clayton, you came through. <laughs> Good morning. When you were speaking of remedies, I was thinking about uh, when we receive emails, emails, text messages, for those of us who have a lot of emails, uh, you're slow to anger or slow to respond resonated with me. Sometimes we get an email and it's, it's uh, tough, tough to read, uh, maybe tough to understand. <clears throat> we need to be slow. Some of us have walked away. You said, take time, count, whatever. Yeah. I would even encourage, say a prayer. Pause for a minute, maybe even sleep on that email yeah. and say a prayer about it. And it's amazing how much better your response will be probably tomorrow than it would have been in the moment. I agree with that. Sometimes it's best to toss and turn on an email before you type. Charles. I was thinking about, as we've talked about this, and I'm, I'm guilty of too close to the speaker, sorry. <laughs> um, and I'm guilty of it, too. We even talk about this wrong. We talk about losing our temper. Well, if I'd lost it, then it wasn't my fault. Instead of giving up our, giving up our anger, we, we lose it. So we, we even talk about it in a way that feeds our assumption that we can't control it. That's right. That's a good point. Is that it? Okay. Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Returning briefly to Moses, one of the things that jumps out at me, you, you read how he's described as there's no man more humble than him. Part of his sin was pride. Do we need to do this? Anger is transformative. That That's not a sin Moses seemed to typically struggle with, but in his anger, he did. And so I think that's an additional part of the dangers, things we don't worry about as much, sins that we don't have to focus as much. They become a greater risk even when we're angry, and so that's part of the danger to me. That's a good point, yes. And anger many times has some intricate connection with pride. Charlie. 
one of the one of the uh, things that I've noticed is that when somebody in the congregation has a problem, they tend to want to email you. And uh, I'm not going to say, get my dander up, because you can't look at the person. You can't see their expression. Um, Sometimes they send that email to you at 2 o'clock in the morning when they've stewed. So if you have a a problem with a brother, don't email them. Go to them. Yeah. That's I uh, I agree very much. There there are certain people in particular that I will drive a hundred miles to have a face to face conversation with them rather than even a phone conversation, just because it can go better when the two of us are face to face. We can see all the body language, all the facial expressions. We can catch all the nuances. I can hear better face to face, and you think, well, that takes a lot more time. Actually, if I don't drive that 100 miles, I can spend 10 times that amount of time trying to fix what I broke over the phone. So I agree completely with that. That it, Jason? I did have one more question with regard, and feel free to raise your hands anytime you have something. But I had one more question with regard to the actual words that are used in the New Testament to talk about anger. And there there are some salient points here. We don't want to get too far down in the weeds on it, but since the question came up, I had wondered whether to do this or not, but I, since the question was raised at the break, I will do this. Um, there are three nouns in the Greek New Testament that denote anger. One of them is thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. Forget the pronunciation, but I just want you to be able to distinguish between the words. T-H-U-M-O-S, thumos, perhaps. This is used 18 times in the New Testament. Fourteen of those times it's translated wrath. Another time it's translated as wraths in 2 Corinthians 12.20. It's translated twice as fierceness and once as indignation, but primarily it's translated as wrath, thumos. Thumos is a state of intense displeasure or rage. It is used of people, as in Luke 4, 28, the people of Nazareth when they tried to kill Jesus. It's used of God, as in Romans 2, 8. This is the wrath that God has for the wicked on the judgment day. And it's used of Satan in Revelation 12, 12, the devil having great wrath because he knows he hath but a short time. That's thumos. Second word is orge, O-R-G-E. It's used twice as often as thumos. That's 36 times in the New Testament. 31 of those times, it's translated as wrath, three times as anger, once as indignation, and once as vengeance. Orge is relatively strong displeasure. Rage is never an appropriate translation for orge, but simply anger. It's sometimes used for a a retributive wrath, retributive wrath, indignation that's directed at wrongdoing. Governments exercise orge in Romans 13. They execute wrath with the death penalty. God executes wrath, bringing vengeance as orge. This is a retributive wrath that we are not to exercise ourselves as individuals. Now, a few times in the New Testament, these two words, thumas and orge, appear together. Places like Romans 2.8, Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.8, 
Revelation 19, verse 5. And the fact that they appear together indicates to me that they mean different things. That's why they're both mentioned together sometimes. So Thumas is passionate, but it's more temporary and more sudden. Orge is less sudden, less passionate, but generally of longer duration and is more controlled. Thumas is never used positively in the Bible of an individual human being, but God can rightly exercise it, and government can rightly exercise it, whereas a human being individually does not tend to. This is the wrath in Ephesus where they chanted for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is mob anger that's out of control. It's an outburst. It was similarly exercised in Nazareth, in the case of trying to kill Jesus, as I said. And it is listed among the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. That's thumos. Orge, on the other hand, is an anger that we can have righteously at times, Ephesians 4.26. But I should mention one other word. It's only mentioned one time in the New Testament, but it's worth mentioning because of its context. This is a longer word. Para-argismos, para-argismos. I don't know how to pronounce these, but I just want you to be able to distinguish between the words. This one appears only one time in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 4.26. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, in other words, have orge, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And the word there is this word that's used only one time. This is the one time it's used, para or gizmos. So Paul is not saying in Ephesians 4.26, have orge, but don't let the sun go down on it. Paul is saying in Ephesians 4.26, have orge, and don't let the sun go down on para or gizmos. This word does not seem to occur outside the Biblical New Testament Greek, and therefore it makes it a little harder to define because usually we can take words from secular literature and see how they were used there. So we may have to guess a little bit at what the actual meaning of para or gizmos is. seems to be being intensely provoked as a strengthened form of orge. It is an exasperation. It's an angry mood. It's a state of provocation. Paragismus, paragismos, communicates the idea of being provoked. So the idea here is that if you have to be angry and if the cause is righteous, then go ahead and let the storm burst in a controlled manner, but be sure the expression of your anger is not prolonged and let calm follow the storm. And be sure that you do not let the day end without quieting your spirit and making sure that you have not grieved the Holy Spirit. Be angry, yet in this anger of yours, Allow no sinful element to mingle. There is that which may cleave to even a righteous anger, this paragismos, this irritation, this exasperation, which must be dismissed in order that, being purged of this impure element which mingled with it, that only may remain which has a right to remain. So do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Let calm follow the storm. You must not nurse anger. Does Paul say that it's wrong to be intensely provoked? No, he does not. Paul says when you get there, you need to get past it soon. To do otherwise is to risk sin. 
So summing up these three words, we have one kind of wrath that if allowed to linger is for sure sinful. That's paraargismos. We have another kind of wrath that is passionate, explosive, and is associated always with wickedness when exercised by individual humans. That's thumos. And that leaves us with orge, which the New Testament tells us it is possible to experience without sin, and that it is actually appropriate for Christians at times. Therefore, let's take a little closer look at what the New Testament has to say about orge. Six times in the New Testament, orge is used of individual expressions. The other 30 times are of God or of government. We also have it used in the verb form in Ephesians 4.26. So totally we've got seven passages that tell us what we need to do about the exercise of this orge as individuals. And to talk about this, I think we need to start with Jesus. Jesus had orge in the third chapter of the book of Mark. And I'm going to this passage because it's the only place in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus was angry. Now, you may know of another place where we're told Jesus is angry. I'll challenge you again to give it to me if you've got it. I think there are other places where Jesus was angry, but it's just not that he he just wasn't said to be angry. I think, for instance, when he cleansed the temple, at both the beginning and the ending of his public ministry, he was angry both times that he did that. But it doesn't say that he was. This in Mark 3, as far as I know, and I'm not seeing any hands contrary to this, as far as I know, this is the only place that actually says that he was angry. And therefore, it becomes important to me, and I want to read to you Mark 3, 1 through 6. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, that's Orge, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. There's no question here but what Jesus was angry. The text says so. My conclusion is, if Jesus was angry, it must have been right to be angry, because he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. If he got angry, that anger must have been right. Why was Jesus angry? Well, what was on these men's minds? Here they have the Son of God in front of them, whom they know to be able to perform miracles, which can only be reasonably explained by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, they know that God is with this man. And what are they interested in? They're trying to see if he'll perform a miracle that will allow them to continue to falsely accuse him so they can then go out and plot against him. Did these men care about the truth? Not one whit. They received not the love of the truth in any detail whatsoever. They're just not interested in it. They cared about themselves. They cared about their own status. These were the enemies of God, and that made Jesus angry. 
here were willful sinners, stubborn rebels. But it's important to realize that Jesus was feeling more than one thing at this point. Not only was he angry, but he was also grieved. There are a couple other times in the Bible when we have anger and grief juxtaposed. We find it a couple of times in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 34, verse 7, when Jacob's sons heard that Dinah was defiled by Shechem, they were grieved and very angry. Again, in Genesis 45, verse 5, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Jesus was grieved with their hardness of heart. When we continue to persist in sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit and we grieve the second person of the Godhead too. Jesus' anger was justified and our anger can be justified sometimes. Let me just, as kind of illustrative of this point, read a passage that may be considered a little more obscure, but a very interesting one, I think, back in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 11. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, I'll just read a a few verses there, maybe just 1 through 6, just to uh, make the point from the Old Testament of how things might go with a righteous indignation. 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 6. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them through all the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. I think I read a little further than I intended to, but it's such a striking story to me. The men of Jabesh Gilead are laid siege to by one Nahash the Ammonite, And he says, I'll make a treaty with you on this one condition. I get to gouge out the right eye of each of you. Well, this would make life very difficult and practically impossible in the particulars of the life that they had to live at that time. So when Saul heard this news, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and his anger was greatly aroused. It seems that the Holy Spirit wanted Saul to be angry on this occasion. Now, yes, he wants us to have love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. He at least, though, was not grieved or was not quenched by this anger of Saul's. He works in tandem with it. Because a monstrous evil was about to be committed. 
This man Nahash was going to permanently maim a whole city of Israelites out of just pure spite. And if you weren't angry about that, you were either spineless or had no convictions at all. So Saul's anger anger prompted him to take action. He gathered the nation of Israel together, and they went out and took care of the problem. And that's what anger is for. Anger is for problem solving. When we get angry, our bodies excrete extra adrenaline, as we have said. And that turns in turn produces more glucose, and it gives us extra energy that we didn't have before. We're energized so we can attack the problem. But in attacking the problem, Paul says, don't sin. Anger energizes. It injects us with something extra so we can attack the problem. Paul says, be angry. Now, some read this as a concession. I had a conversation about that during the break as well. Some read this as a concession, but the actual grammatical construction here gives me good reason to take it as a command. He doesn't say if you get angry. He doesn't say when you get angry. He says, be angry. There are times when we should be angry. Anger can be kindled by fire from hell, or it can be kindled by fire from the altar of God. Jesus was justified in his anger by this egregious sin, and so was Saul in the Old Testament. Lot had his righteous soul vexed from day to day when he saw what he saw in the city of Sodom. And when I see a lesbian predator in the classroom with your five-year-old trying to groom her for possible future use, I'm angry about that. When I see a doctor suck the brain out of an unborn baby or paralyze its heart and chop it up and take it out piece by piece, I am angry. When I see a bunch of politicians purposefully destroying our culture from the top down. I am angry. The person who cannot get angry at the seduction of an innocent girl, at the corruption of a child, at those who practice and propagate perversion, must be either spineless or wholly without moral conviction. When you get angry, why is it? Generally, you either get angry at a terrible wrong or You're angry at a personal offense and insult against you that's hurt your feelings or your desires aren't being gratified. And pride and selfishness begin to enter in. The Bible does not encourage this second kind of anger where pride is mixed in, where selfishness is mixed in, where I'm mad just because my desires aren't being met. The Bible does not encourage that, as you know. The anger that's acceptable to God is divorced from pride. It's divorced from selfishness. The anger most acceptable to God is aroused by genuine injustice, by real wrongdoing, that is, by sin. Perhaps grief should be our first response, and then anger. There is a time to be angry, but we're told to be slow to it. That's James 1.19 again. Slow to orge. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. What does he mean? He means investigate, listen, be a fact finder, figure out what the facts actually are before you get too carried away in your anger. But there are certain occasions where we can have this orge, and to me, we seem to be commanded to have it on rare occasions, even though we need to be slow to it. 
This, of course, is like God. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Again, Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger. Being slow to anger is part of having self-control and is one facet of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9 said, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. I think if I was going to teach this subject for several hours, I would quote that at least once an hour. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 25, 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Lack of self-control leaves me vulnerable. I don't want to be in a vulnerable state. So, the bottom line is this. In most people, most often, their anger is prompted by something that God would not consider a good reason. And once we get angry, we often don't do good things with the energy that it gives us. And that's why James says in 119, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As a general statement, that's absolutely true. With very rare exceptions, as we have in Ephesians 4.26. When we get angry, some of us clam up, some of us blow up, some of us practice internalization, some of us practice ventilation, some of us are pressure cookers, Some of us are volcanoes. Some of us hurt ourselves. Some of us hurt others. Anger, most of the time, produces problems and produces pain. Anger is for destroying problems, not for producing them. Anger is for destroying problems, not for destroying people. There are very common consequences of anger. It stirs up strife. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 29, verse 22. It lays a stumbling block for those who are close to us. Proverbs 22, verse 24. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go. Why? Lest you learn his ways. Yes, it's contagious. Somebody was talking about if you yawn in the general area, the other people in that area will yawn too, even if they're not tired. It's contagious. So is anger and expressions of anger. It makes it seem more normalized if we're around it a lot. So make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man. Do not go lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your own soul. If we're not very careful, our anger can lead us to try to control other people and manipulate them, to exact revenge or punishment. This is what the silent treatment, the the cold shoulder, are all about. To some degree or another, this is an effort to manipulate or control, and it ends up in hurting and, in some cases, destroying other people. Not only must we be angry for the right reasons, but 
We must express it in the right ways. We need to get both parts right. And I think we fathers and husbands, perhaps more than any other one group, need to take this to heart. Our wives and children are forced to live with us. They share living space with us. And if I have a habit of anger, I'm likely to pass that on because it's contagious. You show me a child who has anger issues. And in 99% of the cases, he's got a parent or a caregiver with anger issues. Show me a wife with major anger issues. And more often than not, she's got good reason to be angry. And her husband may be teaching it to her at home. Anger, in general, in life, is a power play. And it can be exhilarating how much attention it can get you and how much action it can get. You may be having trouble getting action at a car dealership when they won't fix your car right, but if you get mad, suddenly they're all over the problem and they fix it. Now, what does that teach you? It teaches gets get angry next time. Not particularly good, but some of you have had that experience. What's the purpose of the cold shoulder? What's the purpose of the silent treatment? It's a punishment. I'm going to make you pay because you didn't give me what I wanted. I'm going to make you pay in the hope that I can manipulate you and control you and get you to come to heal. And its purpose is to hurt or to even destroy. So generally speaking, anger tears people down. Paul says, let all things be done unto edifying. That's building up. We must be angry for the right reasons and in the right ways. Though Paul says be angry, James says be slow to it. And Paul says of this very orge anger that we've been talking about, put it off and put it away. So that's a general rule for life. In general, anger is to be put off and put away. Let me prove it to you. Colossians 3.8 But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, that's orge, wrath, and malice. Again in Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, that's orge, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Why do we have almost a seeming conflict here? It's because its propensity is to damage and destroy and to be driven by pride, Paul says to put it out of your life with these rare exceptions. And failure to take this to heart will even result in my prayers being hindered. We have this not only in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2, but also, of course, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. Again, as I quoted the first hour, 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that men, as opposed to women, pray everywhere without wrath and doubting. So, if you have an anger problem, you probably know it. If you're honest with yourself. Proverbs 14.10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness. But what can you do to overcome it? Maybe you've got a lifelong habit of just having an outburst from time to time. I think it's helpful to ask yourself some questions and honestly answer them in the privacy of your own mind. Take a particular instance where you became angry and ask yourself the question, what happened? What happened to provoke me to anger? 
What were the circumstances that led to my becoming angry? It can seem so silly later, but we need to go back and look at it. I need to know if my anger was justified. I've probably got a sneaking suspicion that it wasn't, but I may try to justify it anyway. So that's where the honesty comes in here. What triggered me to respond this way? What was going on in my mind? This helps me to identify the external factors. Miriam died. That was an external factor for Moses, whether he made the link or not. There were things going on in him internally. I need to identify the external factors that triggered my internal response of anger. And if I ask myself this repeatedly, on repeated instances of anger, if I continually ask myself this question, over time the answers to these questions will show me patterns in my own thinking and help me learn how I can short-circuit that issue. If there are circumstances in which I am habitually responding in anger, I can fix that but I need to have some insight into myself to really know how to do it. One man said this. He said, I have recently discovered in my own life that much of what angers me involves time and money. See, that's a big insight right there. He just made a big leap in his understanding of himself. Much of what angers me involves time and money. This insight helped me to recognize the extent to which I was a lover of money, 1 Timothy 6.10, and a lover of pleasure, 2 Timothy 3.4, since it was my spare time that I would normally enjoy pleasures such as fishing or hunting, which when infringed upon caused me the most frustration. This guy has had a moment of insight. This is exactly what I'm talking about. What is it that triggers you and why? Another man said this, When I am up against the pressure of a deadline, I have higher stress and I'm more vulnerable than normal to exploding and being irritable. You know, I wasn't the one that said that, but I could have, because that one is true for me. When I'm underneath the pressure of a deadline, when my clock, you know, my clock, it doesn't stop. It just keeps ticking, no matter what's going on around me. And I know certain things have to be done at certain times, and I can just feel pressure build up. So I need to be aware of that and get a realistic concept of the way I need to behave. So that's the first question. What happened to provoke me to anger? What were the circumstances that led to my becoming angry? What what patterns can I find here that will help me to do better in the future? That's what it's all about. The past is prologue. Let's start here and see some progress. Question number two. What did I say to myself in my heart when I became angry? You know, many times we lie to ourselves. We're rational people. We may not realize we lie to ourselves, but we do it. David did it in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1. David said to himself, I'm never going to be king. Saul's going to kill me first. He knew better than that. God had already told him he was going to be king. God's prophet Samuel had told him, David, you're going to be the next king. So he knew he was going to be the next king, but he's telling himself that he's not. Why? Because we get emotional, we start feeling sorry for ourselves, and we convince ourselves that a lie is the truth. It's easier to feel sorry for myself if I say that I'm not going to become king, that Saul's going to kill me first. David knew better. We know better, too. But we can convince ourselves that a lie is true. So what did I say to myself in my heart when I became angry? What was I telling myself? Was it true or was it false? This deals with the very thoughts of the heart. 
What did I want? What did I desire? What did I long for when I became angry? This deals with the intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 shows us that there is a difference between thoughts of the heart and intents of the heart. Thoughts and intents are two separate things. The Bible cuts to the core of both of those, and that's the intent of Hebrews 4.12. The Bible helps me discern what I'm really thinking and what I'm really wanting. It helps me to be honest with myself about what my actual goals are. Sometimes I don't even want to admit those to myself. I want to fake out myself along with everybody else about what my true goals are. But if I want to get to the root of my anger, I've got to be honest here. Discerning our motives can be very challenging. Motives are not always as readily available to our awareness as our superficial thoughts are. Nailing down your motive can be hard, especially if we're not used to looking at ourselves that way. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can really know it? You may find that your anger is motivated by a desire that's entirely legitimate. Money, food, sleep, things of that nature. But sometimes you might be motivated by a legitimate desire that is desired inordinately. It's not a problem to desire the money, the sleep, or the food. You need those. But you can desire any one of those in an inordinate manner so that you make it over everything else and trample other people underfoot in the process. Sometimes we want the right thing too much. And we can let something like money or ourself or the approval of other people or an ephemeral pleasure, or food or sleep, we can let this become our focus rather than just keeping it in our peripheral vision. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. I've got to speak the truth in my heart. I've got to be honest with myself before I can even be honest with other people. Got to be honest with myself. God expects me to be honest with him, with all of you, and with myself. So am I really telling myself the truth, or am I telling myself lies and feeding the beast? When you see it out in print, the lie, like you see it in 1 Samuel 27.1, I shall now perish by the hand of Saul. He's going to get me. Every time I get up off the ground, I get up slower. He's wearing me down. I'll never be king. When you see it in print, it sounds ridiculous. David knew he'd be the next king. He'd known that for years. But it's easier to feel sorry for yourself when you can lie to yourself. And don't think that any of us are immune to that. Answering these questions will reveal whether we were telling ourselves the truth when we became angry. If I lied to myself, I became angry on the basis of a lie? How tragic is that? Let's tell ourselves the truth. So let's take it a third step, a third question. What does the Bible say about what I said to myself when I became angry? What does the Bible say about what I wanted? Here, I'm going to let the Lord through the Bible, make a judgment 
about what I was thinking and what I was wanting. This is where we lay the foundation for bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Here we let the Bible define what we're dealing with, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Here we're using the Bible's vocabulary. And by letting God determine the vocabulary, and thus letting God couch the discussion, we can be sure to avoid being deceived, and thus we can enable the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. Psychology has a great deal of value, I think, and I'm thankful for all the good psychologists that we have. They've been very helpful to many people. But it's also important that we identify things the way God identifies them using the vocabulary that he gives us in the Bible. If we do it that way, we let God frame the discussion. We can have the psychological implications and concepts in there. They fit very well with the biblical pattern. But if we don't call a thing what God calls that thing, then we can begin to think it's not so bad. Then we can begin to make excuses for ourselves in places that God does not make excuses for us. When we use God's vocabulary and we see a thing as God sees it, this is how we really start to get transformed by the renewing of our minds. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says that the new man is renewed in knowledge. And this helps us to move toward spiritual maturity. Hebrews 5.14 says that solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So I want to ask, or have us ask ourselves one more question. In the light of my answers to these previous three questions, in the light of what I know now, what should I have said to myself when I became angry? What should I have said to myself? And is it different from what I actually did say to myself? What should I have wanted more than my own selfish and perhaps even idolatrous desires? Identifying what I should have thought and what I should have wanted is really the easy part. But there is good news in the New Testament concerning our desires. Our desires are not unalterable. We can choose them. In fact, 1 Peter 2, first couple of verses there, teaches us that we can lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. We can lay aside all evil speaking and, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word. We're not on our own. Philippians 2.13 says that it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God wants you to succeed in this. He'll do everything he can to help you succeed in it, even though you have to lend yourself to the process. These questions and questions of this nature can help, but the key is being honest with ourselves. I'm going to pause there for a moment again. Didn't mean to talk this long, actually. I want to see if there's any other questions or comments or thoughts that you have. Jason's got the mic. So 
it looks like we don't have any. That's fine. I want to go back to something I said at the beginning. In Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. One thing we can say about the anger of God is that it is justified. And God's anger will someday be fully expressed. Someday the cup of God's wrath is going to be drunk down to its very dregs. And when that happens, we're going to want to be somewhere other than that thing that is happening there. And we can expect to be if we take to heart what we're learning about various principles of Christian living. Think with me for a moment about what it looks like when anger is handled correctly. What would it look like if somebody was really good at managing their anger? I'm not talking about just hiding their anger. We can learn to do that. I'm not talking about ignoring their anger. We can we can pretty easily learn to do that, at least until the explosion. But what would it look like if somebody was really good at managing their anger? Managing it in a genuinely healthy, biblical way. Do you know anybody who handles their anger in that way? Do you know anybody who manages their anger well? And if you think you do, feel free to connect a name with it. Be happy to know that we've got somebody among us who handles their anger well. It's a tough issue. I'm not seeing a lot of hands pertaining to it. Well, think about that one. I'll ask you another one. We've already seen that how we think about a situation can influence how we feel about it. For instance, if you feel like somebody has it in for you or has it out for you, and I'm not sure what the difference is there, the in or the out, but if they've got it in or out for you, you'll probably see all of their actions and all of their words in a negative light. Can you think of a time when some false thoughts affected your anger. In what ways can changing how you think help you control how you feel? Anybody want to tackle that? Now, everybody experiences it. Rich, were you going to say something? Okay, Rich has got something. Jason, thank you. So the thought about not thinking, <laughs> I'm just thinking, quit thinking. Yep. Because um, usually I play out things. I say usually, but when I have the most issues, it's when I play out the thing to where I think it's going to go, and rarely am I correct on that. Yeah. And that I get angry over nothing. Yeah. I appreciate that. And when we want to stop thinking that, we need to replace it with something else. I find that it's good to quote scripture. And it doesn't really matter too much what the scriptures are because they're united in their impact on this issue. Just quote scripture yourself until you're not so angry anymore. And that will fill that void. That void's going to be filled with something. Richard. Um, it has helped me to, and this is a long-term thing, but Philippians 2, to be like Christ, to think yeah. of others better than ourselves. Um, if we're really doing that, what are we so angry about? Yeah, I think so too. Thank you very much. Any other questions, comments, or thoughts? 
I can't tell who that is. Who are you? Hi, this is Andra. Thank you. Um, I have two grandkids that are close in age, a girl 13 and a boy 12. And they have been competitive and argue with each other and things like that. Well, she was baptized this summer. She is trying to change the way that she deals with her brother. Good. And he is still seeing how she used to deal with him. So he anticipates that she does not have his best interest at heart. And so I think we also sometimes do that. We need to step back and give each give other people an opportunity to change or they need to give us an opportunity to change. And we need to not just jump in and expect that we know how they're going to respond. Right. Or know what their what their response even meant or, or what was motivating it. That's a very good comment. Thank you for that. And she needs to stick to her guns, and pretty soon he'll see that the change is genuine and long-lasting. Justin. I've noticed um, whenever we get angry, we try to look for information that proves we're right instead of looking for information that proves it's true. Um, A lot of times if we begin to look for information that we're right and another person's wrong, that just leads us farther into to build our anger instead of trying to diffuse it by looking for what's true and making sure we are correct, that we are correct that way instead of trying to confirm ourselves. That's exactly right. Whatever will lend itself to the other side of the discussion needs to come in, if I'm being honest. Whatever will mitigate the truth that I think I have, if it's on the other side of the equation, I need to acknowledge that and give it its fair share of weight. Because truth is the thing. Receive the love of the truth. Be willing to follow truth wherever it leads, no matter what it does to your own arguments. Got one way back. Is that Aaron? Yep. Many times uh, I had some trouble with anger myself, and I would explode at some of the most irrational things until I was sat down and we discussed, you know, what was going on. And we found out it wasn't anything in particular, but it was my mental health is what was happening. You know, uh, People think depression comes out in sadness and self-loathing, but it also comes out in bursts of anger. And I think one of those things of self-examining is going, is it just because I'm getting angry or because of some other factors that I can help myself to fix and calm down with? And I think that's something that a lot of people sometimes maybe don't think about, is it might not be you, it might be your chemicals in your head being imbalanced. <laughs> there is truth in that. Yeah, absolutely. And while we never want to use that as an excuse, and I know you weren't, there are sometimes even physiological issues that are going on. Then and I had a little boy one time that was subject to fits of temper. And when he had the hole in his heart fixed, he suddenly wasn't getting mad anymore. And we began to notice that hey, this is a change. Apparently it was physiological in nature. We can talk till they come back, I guess. Is that all right, Dave? Charles. One of the 
one of the things that we lie to ourselves and get angry about is is uh, the things that we're responsible for. We take responsibility for something that we have no power to execute, and it makes us angry. So we gotta be honest with ourselves about: Is that your responsibility? Do you actually have the power to do anything about that or not? Right. There are relatively few things we have much power to do anything about, and recognizing that can help indeed. I think you got Kevin Morton. I just wanted to make Jason run back here. Good. I just, I wanted to comment on, I appreciated Justin's comment earlier. And uh, just to add to that, you know, I think it's, and I appreciate you pointing this out earlier too, going through the mental exercises of why am I angry and what is the cause of my anger here? Um, A lot of times the cause of, the causes of our anger can be our interpretation of the events that occurred. There's a difference between what actually happened and my interpretation of what happened. Exactly right. And a lot of times I come up with these stories in my head. I have that little voice in my head telling me this is how it is. Right. When really that's just me interpreting what has happened. And I may be right. More often than not, I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) Or I'm missing a lot of important things. And, you know, if we can stop and recognize the fact that this is my interpretation, maybe I don't have all the facts Maybe I can extend a little bit of grace to the other person, as we discussed the other day. Um, I might be able to to mitigate some of that anger and also save myself some embarrassment. You know, when I learn more about the situation, oh, I'm so glad I didn't act on that anger because I was I was I didn't have all the information. So it's important for us to understand the difference between what actually happened and our interpretation of what happened. Absolutely correct, and this has has been the way it's always been. I think that's precisely why God asked Cain, here back in Genesis 4, why are you angry? And if Cain had taken the time and insight to really answer that question, a life could have been spared. Thanks, everybody.